On this episode of This Week in Linux, AMD releases a BIOS fix for their new hardware that was having booting issues on Linux, IBM closes the landmark acquisition of Red Hat, and Ubuntu announces the Ubuntu LTS users will be getting the latest NVIDIA drivers much more easily. In app news, Mozilla releases Firefox 68, and Mozilla responds to some weird news around an organization calling them an internet villain. In other app news, we'll take a look at some news regarding GNOME software, possibly dropping support for Snaps, and new releases from SyncThing and Kden Live. Later in the show, we'll check out some hardware news from the new PyTop 4 and do some follow-ups on the topics we discussed in previous episodes, including one topic where I need to make a correction to a mistake I made regarding IDE in the 5.2 Linux kernel. Then we'll round out the show with some Linux gaming news. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, load balancers, integrated firewalls, multiple storage options, and more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free for a month with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean for that $50 credit by going to do.co slash tux. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux. IBM closes the landmark acquisition of Red Hat. And this acquisition of Red Hat will be for $34 billion. And the, from the press release, the, their, IBM Red Hat say, uh, joining forces with IBM gives Red Hat the opportunity to bring more open source innovation to an even broader range of organizations and will enable us to scale to meet the need for hybrid cloud solutions that deliver true choice and agility. And the senior vice president of cloud and, co- and cognitive software at IBM, Avrind Krishna, uh, says Red Hat products teams are going to make their decisions on product plan. They're going to maintain how they work upstream. They're going to maintain their commitment on both how they contribute to open source and take from upstream projects for, for uh, products that are downstream. So basically they're saying that it's going to be nothing changing. Like IBM's not going to be taking over Red Hat. Not, and it, Jim Whitehurst is going to stay as the Red Hat CEO or whatever title he might be changing to. I don't know. But he's going to be staying as the, the head of, of, White, of Red Hat. So they're not really changing anything. There's even asked about what they're going to do about layoffs, and Krishna said that they have they're not talking about layoffs at all. So they're basically just doing a they're saying this acquisition is all about the revenue synergy and growth going forward. And now this is interesting because a lot of people are saying that it's going to be bad for Red Hat because IBM's going to ruin Red Hat or something. And I think that it's more than likely that Red Hat will affect IBM because of the fact that Red Hat is not really an IP company, they're mostly uh, you know intellectual property. They're mostly a company that does uh, that's more of like the people and the brand rather than the product they sell and they create. Because they created open source, most of the stuff they make is open source, so there's really no reason for them to you know purchase them for the products. They could just use the software if they wanted to. Whereas in this case, they're purchasing it for the the brand of Red Hat and also the culture of Red Hat because. Uh, more than likely, this is going to affect IBM. You know, like I, Red Hat's culture is going to change maybe a little bit of IBM's culture, which would be awesome. Uh, so I think that more than likely is the opposite of what people are afraid of. Uh, but I don't know for sure. We'll have to wait and see. But I do think that there's more likelihood that that will happen. They also say Red Hat will become an independent entity within IBM as part of the IBM's cloud and cognitive software segment. And that IBM will maintain Red Hat's headquarters in Raleigh, North Carolina, its facilities, its brands, and practices. So basically, uh, they're they're just kind of com- merging together, but they're not really r- removing anything that makes Red Hat Red Hat. 
So that's awesome to hear. Uh, and also, you want to check out the latest episode of the Ask Noah show. He makes a uh, Noah makes a good point about the Red Hat and their culture in the sense that if you want to change a big corporation, one of the best ways to do it is to get people who have a you know a good philosophy and a good culture to be a part of that big corporation, so they can change it from the inside. So by purchasing Red Hat, they're bringing in all those people who have that opinion to want to change and improve IBM you know, for the better of the way the Red Hat does their stuff. So that's a pretty interesting concept. And I think that's, you know, more than likely what's going to happen. If you'd like to learn more about what Noah said, yeah, I'll have you a link to the the episode of the Ask Noah show where he talks about Red Hat and this acquisition in the show notes below, as well as go to the destinationlinux.org website where we discuss this this topic as well on the next episode of 130. That episode is not out as of recording, as I said previously, because we talked about the AMD thing and the IBM Red Hat thing in that episode. But that will be coming out in a day or so, so be sure to subscribe on destinationlinux.org to get the latest episode. Uh, that's where you'll see uh, myself, Noah, Ryan, and Zeb talking about AMD uh, the Red Hat and Abian thing, and many more things. So be sure to go to destinationlinux.org to find out more about this. And uh, let's go to the next topic. Up next in the show, Ubuntu announced that the Ubuntu LTS users will get the latest NVIDIA drivers pretty soon and fairly easily. Previously, you needed a separate PPA for updates, or you'd had to install them the drivers manually, which would be a massive pain. But now you can install the latest releases from the proprietary of the proprietary NVIDIA driver through the regular Ubuntu updates channel, which is being uh, created through the stable release update system or the SRU system, and makes it a lot easier for you just to go in and choose that you have the NVIDIA, and then it will just you know get you automatically give you up to date stuff based on like just from the re- the Ubuntu repo itself. And this is being able to extend uh, the uh, structure of using the NVIDIA driver for Ubuntu users, making it possible for you to use Ubuntu 18.04 LTS, even 16.04 LTS if you wanted to. I um, mean, 18.04 is already available. I'm pretty sure that you could use it, but the 16.04 is coming soon. Uh, so it would give you access to the NVIDIA drivers really easily out of the box, which is great for the NVIDIA users, and that's awesome. And also any... Uh, Linux distribution that's based on Ubuntu 18.04 will also get the benefit of having that. So that's, you know, like Linux Mint and Elementary and Kitty Neon, etc. All of those would get the benefit of that as well, which is fantastic. You know, there's, there's this is really good. It does kind of disappoint me in some ways um, in a different, you know, it's a different side thing. It's great for NVIDIA users, and I used to be an NVIDIA user, and I think that it's awesome that people are getting these support because it's, you know, getting access to the proprietary drivers has always been a pain for NVIDIA. Uh, not horrible, but annoying, at least, and an irritant. Uh, so making it much easier is great, and that is awesome. But NVIDIA is the proprietary company for graphics, or GPUs, and AMD is the open source company for GPUs. And we just talked about how they had some issues with, re- you know, releasing some software and there's no mechanism to update the uh, so the drivers for uh, AMD, so they're going to have to do it through a motherboard fix. Uh, and if there was a way to fix it in, you know, the distros themselves get up-to-date packages in Ubuntu or uh, other distros that are LTS-based, that would have been a much easier solution. So it's just kind of, you know, somewhat irritating that the proprietary driver company is the getting the one that's getting the attention the most. Because like previously we talked about how you know, AMD or NVIDIA is getting access or getting put onto the latest ISOs. And now we're getting this, you know, up-to-date stuff, drivers for the older versions of Ubuntu. And we're not getting the up-to-date versions of uh, AMD. I mean, not very fast anyway. So in this case, you, as soon as there's an NVIDIA update, you get the update. Whereas when AMD releases an update, because they're open source and they do it through the kernel and the Mesa drivers, we got to wait, you know, six months maybe more to get the hardware enablement stack to push back the the updates so it's just kind of frustrating at the same time like it's it's great and i'm happy for the nvidia users but it's also kind of frustrating at the same time so overall this is great news but you know i guess i'm just kind of like asking the canonical and a bunch of people to you know put some more effort into amd as well because it's the open source company or the open source graphics company then you know why are we not supporting them equally if not more actually more really but anyway if you'd like to learn more about this topic i'll have a link to the forbes article about it in the show notes below 
Up next in the show is the latest release of Firefox. Firefox 68 ESR has been released by Mozilla. And if you're not aware, ESR means Extended Support Release, which is basically kind of like long-term support or LTS that the distributions you typically use. And the, this one is not like a huge release, but there's a lot of improvements and functionality improvements and overall just you know niceties that have been added. And they for one of them, they've added some JavaScript big int support, which makes it possible to store very large numbers. And it, it, it improves the overall performance. And I'll have a detailed explanation in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about what the big int stuff is. Uh, they've also improved the web rendering for Linux performance, and it was tested by Pharonix to you know find out how much they've improved it. And so they said it's you know significant improvement, which is awesome. They've also improved some uh, web compatibility with different standards. They've done some improvements to the different developer tools. They've also uh, improved some stuff by restricting some APIs not being allowed to to be used over. Um, non-secure protocols like not using HTTPS. So in certain cases, if you wanted to use these APIs, it requires you to have a secure connection, which is fantastic. They also have done some things such as uh, improving accessibilities in dev tools, which is really cool. So they made it possible to have an accessibility panel that will now report where there's any color contrast issues on a page with the text and the background and set and etc. So if you and they're they're building more and more accessibility tools as well. So if you are a developer and you don't have any issues with needing accessibility features, this would be able to help you, you know, guide you more into like paying attention to those things, which is fantastic because unfortunately a lot of website developers do not pay attention to that. Uh, but so it's great that Firefox is helping with that. And there's also some stu- improvements to the Firefox reader mode because they've now made it like you can have a dark mode in the reader mode, which is great. And this also uh, adds a blackout shades feature. Uh, but one of the things that I really like the fact about this dark this uh, dark theme is that they've they've kind of ex- like expanded the dark theme system over more aspects of the browser. So for example, if you activate the dark theme in your customized section, um, you can also uh, get benefits of having some improvements to other places that previously were not affected by that. So, for example, the history manager and bookmark manager, when you uh, previous versions, when you uh, when you turn it into dark theme, it would still be a bright theme on those sections of the browser. Now, thankfully, you can get those in a dark mode with the latest 68 version. So when you open up the history manager or the bookmark manager, it'll still be connected to the dark theme that you have for the the actual browser itself, which is great because that was kind of the only issue that I really had as far as the design of it. And I'm really glad to see that, that they fixed that. So if you'd like to learn more about Firefox 68 or if you'd like to download Firefox 68 ESR, I have a link to it in the show notes. And some other Mozilla news and also some, wait, what news? And that is UK ISPs, or the ISPA, the Internet Service Provider uh, Association of the UK, are claiming that Mozilla is an internet villain or a finalist for an internet villain. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, the reason they're saying it is because they're saying that the Mozilla's proposed approach to introduce DNS over HTTPS in such a way as to bypass UK filtering obligations and parental controls, undermining internet safety standards in the UK. Okay, so let's break this down of how ridiculous this is. First of all, DNS over HTTPS, or DOH, is a specification designed to close one of the several remaining privacy holes that expose web users to scrutiny, and and it protects online queries submitted through the domain name system, or DNS, so an intermediary on the network cannot intercept them and determine which sites requesters intend to visit. Uh, As Google notes on their DOH developer page, yes, they're doing this too, uh, traditional DNS queries and replies are sent over UDP or TCP without encryption, making them subject to surveillance, spoofing, and DNS-based internet filtering. This is kind, the kind. The really thing that they're worried about is the UK ISPs are complaining because of the ridiculous laws that were passed, doing all these different filtering things, forcing people to have to become be a part of a list in order to have access to certain parts of the internet and all this other nonsense that the UK passed. So the really, it's it's not, yes, in their eyes, they're saying it's an internet villain. Really, what they're doing is trying to misrepresent the, the facts that they are the villain and pretend that they're not. 
because they're the ones who, well, and technically the ISPs are not making these laws. The, the government is, of the UK is making the law, so it's not really the ISP's fault. But the fact that they're making this claim, I would say kind of puts them on the same situation of, you know, they're part of it now, too. They're a part of the problem, too. If they're going to attack someone who's trying to provide more privacy. It's like, okay. Anyway, uh, Mozilla responded and said, We're surprised and disappointed that an industry association of ISPs decided to misrepresent an improvement to decades-old internet infrastructure. It's what? why would you be doing this? Because is, is there going to be some issues with... Um, you know, the, the, there's going to be a DNS over HTTPS still requires a provider in order to make those work. And that's true. So they're going to be had to be big companies like Cloudflare, which is what Firefox is using uh, for their the DNS over HTTPS. It's not fully implemented yet, but they're, they're working on that and they're working with Cloudflare to do it. Uh, there's also other companies like even Google offers this same kind of service. Uh, overall, uh, this is going to be a better improvement because it makes it so that you're not the person who is storing the data has uh, has to deal with having a secure encryption. People can't be snooping over the thing. So there is possibility that companies who are providing the DNS service could still do something, but it does make sure that it at least has somewhat of a connection, a uh, secure connection. So essentially these ISPs are complaining that by using this, you're bypassing the stupid laws that require them to filter things anyway. So like, what? Whatever. Uh, it's actually kind of funny because they did classify something else as an internet villain that is a good suggestion as being an internet villain. And that's the Article 13 copyright director from the EU that basically threatens free speech. Um, so that one does make sense. But associating Mozilla with in the same category as that is ridiculous. Anyway, uh, it, I, it basically boils down to uh, having the ability to not be tracked is a problem in their eyes. Or, or not necessarily tracked, but not also be not filtered, you know, because they want to filter you because the UK forces them to. I don't even know why they want to filter. That just adds extra work for them. But, you know, whatever. And, and as far as like the, their complaint about parental controls, you can do parental controls on your computer that will still work with the, with DNS over HTTPS. So if you still wanted to have parental controls for like for what your kids can go to on on the online, you can still do that. But you don't need your ISP to do it for you. Right. Anyway, let's move on to the next topic. Up next in the show is some interesting news regarding some, a little bit of drama, but not exactly, but kind of, uh, regarding GNOME software and dropping SNAP support, or potentially dropping SNAP support. So uh, in this uh, merge request, it was noted that Ubuntu is switching to a new SNAP store by ins uh, for installing and removing SNAPs. This commit drops the snap back in from GNOME software to avoid maintenance overhead. Now, the the weird thing about that is, um, you know, the snap store we talked about in a previous episode of This Week in Linux. We also talked about it in an episode of Destination Linux, so you can check those out. I'll have a link to those in the show notes. But it's weird because the snap store is nowhere near ready. So this is very premature in order to, and by doing this, it's very premature. So it's kind of weird that this is even a merge request in the first place however someone in one of the gnome developers also agreed with that idea that it's way too it's, it's premature the snap store is not even available yet so why would we remove support now uh, like yes maybe in the future it makes sense but right now not to do that they've decided to not do this and there's a little bit of drama around this happening but overall this is not happening at least not yet it more than likely will as soon as the Snap Store is available. It more than likely will. However, Fedora has decided that they will be removing Snap support in GNOME software. They're not removing Snap support in general, but they are removing it from the GNOME software release in Fedora 31, which will be coming out in late October. Now, how much of an issue this will be, I don't know, uh, because you know Snaps are not really that hard to use on the command line, so it might not be that big of a deal. And also, there, the GNOME software you know, needs, needs some work anyway for the other plugins like the Flatpak support and the, the Snap support anyway. So it's not necessarily the worst possible thing that could happen. But it is interesting that they're removing it uh, you know, now before there's a solution. So, you know. Uh, but there also are some people who are working on Fedora who have said that they're going to try to make a standalone solution. So 
it might not fully happen, but we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But I do think it's worth an, it's worth talking about because it is an interesting concept in the fact that in this thread, the reason why they even announced this is because they heard about the Snap Store, but they didn't really fully research the concept about it, so they didn't know if it was really you know available or not. So I guess that's that was kind of premature about it, but. I mean, I don't. I can't guarantee that they know really know, but their their reference to whether it was being made or not, or and their uh, like claiming it was an official announcement or whatever, was uh, an article by Pharonics having talked about it, and that's not an official source. Pharonics makes good stuff, sure, but that's not an official source from Canonical or Ubuntu. So it's just kind of odd that they were use that as an, a, a reason to you know jump ahead and start doing stuff like this. Uh, which also kind of creates the, uh, you know, gives some validity to the argument about not, you know, talking about what you're doing in the open source world until you're ready to do it. Because there's a lot of people who argue that being fully transparent has negativity in the terms of what you're planning, because people might react negatively to something that you want to do, and therefore some drama comes up kind of like this. Where it doesn't need to be exist, it doesn't need to happen. You know, the Snap Store is not available yet. It's not being used by Ubuntu yet. It's not even really built yet. So they're definitely not switching to it right now. So there's really no reason for them to want to take out support yet. Now, and eventually, it makes sense that once the Snap Store is available, to get rid of it. But uh, at the moment, not really. So it's it's just interesting the the overall uh, debate about whether you should have. Uh, more transparency or less transparency in terms of what your roadmap is for the software that you're creating. Because had Federonics not talked about it, or had we not talked about it on this show, and Destination Linux had not talked about it, the developers for the GNOME software might not even see it until more closer to when it's actually ready, and therefore when they saw it and decided to remove the, fe- the functionality, it might make more sense at that point. But at the same time, there's also some negatives about not being transparent while you're doing the roadmaps because you don't really know what's coming and you can't make suggestions based off that and, you know, all this kind of thing. I just thought it's an interesting topic that we could discuss in the comments below. And if you'd like to do so, please please do send a comment or leave a comment below or send an email or, you know, tweet me at Michael at Michael or at uh, This Week in Linux. And we can talk about this particular topic because I, th- I think it is interesting because there are some pros and cons to both being open and being transparent versus not uh, in terms of the open source. I mean, the software itself should be open source, absolutely. But is it a good idea to be completely open and transparent while you're making that software before you actually release uh, your first you know, release? So let me know what you think in the comments below or on Twitter or email, however you want to do it. I want to continue this conversation because I think this is definitely an interesting topic. Up next in the show is the latest release of the Caden Live video editor 19.4.04.3. So 19.04.3. And this is a maintenance uh, release. It's not like a big feature release, but they have done some a couple new features that are nice. Uh, mostly they've they've done they fixed over 70 bugs including keyframe management uh, improving the ability to open project files if they have mix, mix, missing proxy clips. They've also improved the handling for timeline previews, improved the uh, code, like a, with the code cleanup of the audio thumbnails. They've also improved the zoom options, and they've uh, done some clean, uh, speed up for the clip selection as well in like large projects. Um, and it's also worth noting that they uh, made a new... A shortcut possibility to like assign a shortcut to the multi-track view. Now, if you're not aware, the multi-track view is a, a ability to display multiple tracks in the same view monitor separately from rather than the normal layered approach. Because normally the tracks will sit on top of each other in that monitor, and this way allows you to have all the different tracks kind of like side by side or in a grid to edit them all at the same time. Now, this is not going to make a multi-camera render thing but it is going to make it easier if you would uh, if you have uh, multiple tracks so for example if you had three video tracks and you wanted to edit all of the clips in those tracks at the same time you could do that with this multi-track view 
So it's really nice that they are making it easy to get access to that because previously you had to right-click the preview monitor, then choose multi-track view, but a lot of people didn't even know that that was there in the first place. Like, for example, I've been using Caden Live for a very long time, many, many years, and I only found out it existed about six, seven months ago. So uh, this is making it a lot better because it has some more discoverability by having the shortcut, but I don't think they have a default sh shortcut set up. Uh, maybe they'll do that in the future. I don't know. But it's great that they're making it more accessible in the sense of being able to uh, you know, do it with a shortcut rather than the process of right-clicking and choosing from the menu and et cetera, et cetera. So this is great. Uh, actually, I'm a big fan of Caden Live. I've already said that before many times. Uh, but I really like Caden Live because it gives you a lot of power and a lot of control over your editing. Uh, and I also did a talk at the Southeast Linux Fest conference or self uh, just this last month, and I'll be uploading that talk. I had to do some editing because I had to do some audio syncing and some editing about the, you know, the beginning and, and uh, clip trim out the different sections that are not relevant to the talk, and you know that stuff, making sure you can hear the uh, questions from the Q and A part, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'm working on that. That will be coming pretty soon. It'll be it's a talk about like the Caden Live uh, beginners to advanced usage as well as some uh, custom techniques as well and also answering a lot of different uh, t questions related to Caden Live. So if you're interested in that, uh, be sure to subscribe to the channel because I'll be posting that here. Um, so I think that it's definitely worth checking out when it does come, when I do finish it and put it out, uh, because I think that Caden Live is a great editor. And if you have any questions about it, feel free to uh, you know leave a comment to the Caden Live when I finish that. You know, when I upload it, feel free to ask any questions you have about it. I'll try to I'll do my best to answer it. This episode of This Week in Linux is also sponsored by the awesome people who are patrons of Tux Digital. Now, they can be patrons on tuxdigital.com slash Patreon or tuxdigital.com slash sponsors. If you're not aware, a, a patron is someone who is contributing on a monthly basis to the channel and to this podcast to help me create, you know, continue to create this channel, this content on this channel and also this podcast. So if you would like to become a patron, you could go to tuxedo.com slash sponsors to become a patron on the sponsors platform or go to tuxedo.com slash Patreon to become a patron on the Patreon platform. Now, if you'll notice that the the minimum amount on Patreon is $1, whereas the minimum amount on sponsors is $3. And the reason for that is because the transaction fees are different on the different platforms. But I created the sponsors accounts or platform campaign to offer an alternative for people who do not want to use Patreon. And if that's you, then sponsors is a great option for that. It's very similar in many ways to Patreon. Uh, but I want to make one thing, uh, clarify one thing is that when you go into sponsors to add your credit card, that'll be a section that says the Stripe account. You don't actually need a Stripe account. That's only for creators. So you can just skip that part completely. But if you also want to use Patreon, that is an option as well. If you want to do the $1 a month because the, the transaction fees are done differently on Patreon, which makes it more reasonable to do. A, a single dollar contribution per month. Uh, but anyway, if you'd like to become a patron and help help me make this show, then I would be incredibly grateful. Uh, it's it's awesome that so many people are willing to help make this show possible. And you know, I, I, I'm just amazed by it every single time I look at the account. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more, you can go to touchdigital.com slash Patreon or touchdigital.com slash sponsors to become a patron of Tux Digital and of This Week in Linux next topic is SyncThing 1.2.0. SyncThing, if you haven't heard of it, is basically like an alternative to Dropbox. It's also kind of like a local-ish alternative to Dropbox. It's written in Go, and it implements its own block exchange protocol. And all the communication is secured over TLS and authenticated using a, a strong cryptographic certificates. Now, it's interesting because if you haven't heard of it, SyncThing is basically, like I said, it's about it's like a Dropbox alternative, but it's not necessarily a server-based thing. So like Dropbox, you send your files to the Dropbox server and then it syncs from their server. This way, you provide the server yourself. So it's by default, it does a LAN syncing. So you have devices on your at your house or on your network that you can send sync files back and forth. But you can also do it over the internet if you'd like to, setting up uh, the ability. Your sync thing has the ability to do that over the internet if you'd want. Uh, but you still have to provide your own computer as a server, making it so that you know that none of the data that you have is being sent to any kind of third party or whatever like Dropbox does. Or Dropbox is definitely not trustworthy. Anyway, 
Uh, in this latest version of Sync Thing, they've added some new pro- a new transport protocol called QUIC, or the Quick UDP Internet Connections with NAT Traversal Protocol. I'll have I'll have a, a link to the show note or the in the show notes to the release uh, of Sync Thing that gives more details about what that means that protocol is. I also wanted to talk about another feature that they added in this re- this release, and that is they have enabled automatic error reporting. Now. It's really good because I like the idea of making it possible to do automatic error reporting because a lot of people don't really want to take the time to do the error reporting and they don't and a lot of people don't even know how to do the best way to get the, the error reports you know the, the data that they need to send in order to benefit the software when the when the system crashes or whatever so this is great because they're doing it themselves automatically and they're avoiding certain types of content as far as the information being sent so to be clear the sync things uh, team say a technical trace of what the various threads and routines in sync thing were doing at the time of the crash is sent to the as far in the error report however the report does not include any log data, file names, device IDs, statistics, unique identifiers, or any other personally identifiable information. So it's only sending data that relates to the software when it crashed rather than any content that has anything to do with what you're using it for, which is great. And they also made it possible that if you would like to go into the settings and disable it, you can do that as well. So you don't have to do the automatic reporting, but if you do want to help improve SyncThing, you can be a part of that as well. So that's great that they're giving the option as well as making sure that the stuff that they're sending is only relevant to the software and the stability of the software. So that is awesome. Uh, SyncThing is a really cool uh, piece of software. It's a really great project. If you haven't tried it out and you're looking for some kind of Sync software and you are comfortable with doing your own server, it doesn't really require you to have like your own custom server in the, like in the cloud or whatever. You can use SyncThing to create one of your, to turn one of your computers into the server, because uh, it effectively handles everything. Um, so it's not like a really complicated server structure. It's just you need to have, you need to have something that allows it to be like the the master computer of the data, you know that kind of thing. Uh, so it's not that difficult, but it is. Uh, it's more involved than Dropbox, which is good because you don't want the software to be as involved as Dropbox is when, you know, basically snooping on your content. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about SyncThing, I'll have a link to the latest release notes as well as the main website for SyncThing 1.2.0. Up next in the show is some hardware news, specifically the PyTop 4. And this is a uh, programmable mini screen and buttons that have, uh, it has a CPU cooling system, it has some different project kits and components that you can build stuff based on this, and it also has its own internal battery. Uh, and it also is powered by the Raspberry Pi 4 with four gigs of RAM, so the biggest one that was recently released. And it also has this new social making platform called Further, which allows you to share your uh, your projects and your ideas with a community and also get uh, ideas and stuff from the community to create things with this PyTop. Now, if you've never heard of the PyTop before, the PyTop was originally created as a laptop, that's why it's called PyTop, with the Pi. So, PyTop, laptop, Pi combination, sure. This one, that's not what it is. So, they're keeping the name because they just have that name, you know, from previous usage of it. But it's not really a laptop anymore. Now, they are making it possible to have an optional 11.6 inch. 1080p touchscreen that has a detachable Bluetooth keyboard that you can attach this device to the back of the screen, but it's not really a laptop anymore. It's more of a project to make it easier for kids or for people who are new to programming to build things or even just like, you know, build electronic stuff. Like you could build a drone with this, you could build all kinds of stuff. They showed different demonstrations for a variety of different things, which is really cool. They also say that it has a metal component case that has 14 electric components such as programmable sensors, buttons, and LEDs to do whatever kind of project you might want to do. They also made it possible, which is, this is really cool, and at the same time completely unnecessary, but I really like the fact that they're doing it, is that they have support for connecting the various different components through Lego connectors. So you could build your own Lego set that has custom you know, stuff built with the the Pi Top. So that's pretty cool. I really like that. What I don't like is that it's kind of expensive. So um, retail price 
is $279 for the Pi Top. Now that, that does not get you this touchscreen. In order to get the touchscreen and keyboard, that's a 300. Uh, the retail is $449. However, if you if you back it on uh, Kickstarter, which they've already met their goal, uh, and I'm not really sure, honestly, I'm not sure why they're using Kickstarter since the product seems to already exist in the final stage. So maybe they're using it as a way to give like early adopter pricing or something like that. I don't know, but whatever. If you would like to uh, get the Pi Top for a cheaper price, the regular version starts at $199 on Kickstarter or $349 for the touchscreen and keyboard. Now, the the Pi Top comes with the Pi Top and the case, but it also comes with a 16 gig SD card. It also comes access to the further community. Um, and they also get access, you get uh, 14 Pi Top component modules, component case, and the foundation plate. Now these plate systems actually pretty cool because by connecting the Pi Top to these foundation or the foundation plate and the other plates, it gives you more access to the GPIO pins in the Pi, as well as giving you more control about different ports that you can have and those kinds of things. So it's kind of cool that they're doing it, but it is kind of expensive. You know, it is, it is kind of expensive in the, you know, the grand scheme of the, once this Kickstarter is over, you know, it's kind of expensive, but at the same time, I do really like what they're doing. So if you are interested in checking it out, I'll have a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes, uh, because I think that there is potential here. Uh, I don't know if I would be willing to pay for that because you know I'd rather just use the Pi itself to do all the customization. But it is really cool for people who are you know r- r- brand new to doing programming or building crafts and building projects and doing like electronic work and stuff. It does make that a lot easier, and it's a really good idea for kids uh, because it allows them to learn the concepts of building these things without having to worry about soldering and stuff like that. So uh, this is cool in that sense. And, uh, I, you know, I give, I hope they, you know, they do well and best luck to them. Uh, but for me, I think it's a little bit too much and I'd rather just use the Pi in general. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the Pi Top 4 in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a follow-up to a previous topic that we talked about of Microsoft getting access to the Linux distro's mailing list, which is a private mailing list. And they've been admitted to that mailing list. So I just wanted to discuss, uh, the, the reactions from, uh, different kernel developers as well as the community in general uh, and, over, and also the people who are part of that list uh, what they think about this happening uh, because I was pretty negative about it on episode 72 because it's Microsoft and I don't trust them even though they've changed their ways and they supposedly love Linux and all that other stuff it's still Microsoft and they haven't proven to me that they actually care they proved to me that they realize that Linux is something they cannot beat and they have to deal with it um, but other than that, you know, I don't, it's Microsoft. Anyway, uh, the arguments is that the Microsoft is technically a Linux distributor. They do distribute the Linux kernel on WSL. And they also create the Azure Sphere, which is a IoT device that also has a Linux-based distribution on it. So it's a project that allows you to deploy IoT devices with security updates and various different things and etc 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 whatever. Uh, Azure Sphere technically is a Linux distro, and technically they are distributing the Linux kernel in the Windows subsystem for Linux version two specifically. But at the same time, anyway, so Sasha Levin says on their uh, on the the announcement or trying to request to get into the the access. Microsoft has decades-long history of addressing security issues uh, via the MSRC, or the Microsoft Security Response Center. While we are able to quickly create a build to address disclosed security issues, we require extensive testing and validation before we make these builds public. Being members of this mailing list would provide us the additional time we need to to for extensive testing. There's a follow-up part from Sasha Levin saying that the Linux uses on our cloud has surpassed Windows, as in talking about Azure, Windows Azure. So, or Microsoft Azure, whatever they call it, as a product, as a byproduct of that MSRC, has started receiving security reports of issues with Linux code, both from users and vendors. It's also the case that the issues that are common for Windows and Linux, uh, like those speculative hardware bugs, like with Intel and you know Meltdown, Spectre, and all that stuff. Greg K H or Greg Crow Hartman 
the stable branch kernel, the Linux stable branch kernel maintainer. So said that he suggested Microsoft join this particular mailing list roughly around a year ago or so when he felt they were becoming a Linux distributor. So technically, yes, they are. Um, basically, what, I'm, what this article is about, or this topic on the show is about, is me expressing my uh, distaste for Microsoft and how I don't really trust them. But technically speaking, they do have a right to be a part of this mailing list. And also, how this is not that big of a deal. Because I recently found out that the list purpose is to report and discuss security issues that are not yet public yet. That part I knew. However, how soon do they get the access to that information before it goes public? Not very long. Because they have a requirement that the stuff in this mailing list is like security hells that will be kept private, but they will be kept private for no more than 14 days after they're being revealed to the group. So, yes, this gives Microsoft access to uh, a private mailing list, but it's only private for 14 days. So it's not like they can use these 14 days to implement some kind of massive problem or whatever to hurt in, uh, Linux or whatever. And also, like overall, it's just going to be things that can be done fixed within that 14-day period. So things like the Intel's uh, CPU meltdown Spectre security bugs would have not be, even been discussed on the Linux distro's mailing list because that took a lot more time to complete the fix. So the 14 days would not have been done, so they wouldn't even use the mailing list. So at the same time, while, yes, I don't like Microsoft, I don't think they're trustworthy, I don't think they've proven themselves to care about Linux or love Linux, but this mailing list is not as... That is not that big a deal for them to have access to. You know, I kind of implied that it was, a, you know, using that as an example to talk about how I don't trust Microsoft because they don't, they've never proven that they actually care. It's just more of like they've proven that they have no choice to, but to deal with, with Linux, so they do. Uh, but that's really the only thing they've ever proven. And that's kind of what I was doing with the previous episode where we talked about it, where I was kind of, I don't know, venting, I guess. And this one's more of a, same kind of thing. I'm still venting. I still don't like Microsoft. I still don't think they've proven anything. And uh, I don't believe the stuff that they're saying. But at the same time, it's only two weeks private. So it's not that big of an issue. Let's move on. If you have to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the uh, uh, ZDNet uh, article in the show notes. Up next in the show is some interesting uh, information about Huawei and their new OS. They have a name for that OS. Uh, we've talked about this previous in, in a previous episode, and I said I would keep you up to date about new information we found. And there's not a lot of new information about this, but it is interesting because they have t- made some claims. Like, uh, the, by the, to be clear, the name of the OS is going to be uh, Hong, Hongming OS. I probably said that wrong. Sorry if I did. Um, but anyway, it's going to. They're claiming that it's going to be faster than Android. We'll have a broader application as well, so it's not just a smartphone OS. They claim that it'll be usable on smartphones, routers, network switches, tablets, computers, and even data centers. So they're going all out on that sense. Uh, they they say it would even be faster than Apple's macOS by boasting less than five millisecond processing delay. Uh, so anyway, if you haven't heard, essentially the U.S. gave Huawei. Uh, a bit of an issue that they had to deal with. They were they essentially banned Huawei or any com- any U.S. company with making with doing deals and supplying products and services or whatever to Huawei. And recently, uh, they've decided to give relief to Huawei in some ways because it also hurt the companies that were providing the services to Huawei because Huawei is a big uh, a customer to those people, and it was kind of hurting them too. So they kind of did some relief efforts on you know giving some reprieve to Huawei at least a little bit uh, in the terms of the ban itself uh, but the the Huawei CEO doesn't seem to put much faith in that uh, you know relief or whatever and is still moving forward with removing their reliance on US suppliers which is why they're creating this operating system um, which does kind of make sense because you know who knows what would happen with like whether this is actually going to be more permanent or whether it's just a temporary solution that's you know giving access to the Huawei with these suppliers and stuff, so it does make sense that they would create their own operating system because as soon as they were banned, essentially, they were no longer allowed to use Android. So even though it's an open source software, there's many parts of Android that are proprietary, and therefore 
they couldn't use that. They could technically use the open source part of it, but they have to build all their extra stuff on top of the open source, and they wouldn't be able to use the Play Store, which would be really complicated. So instead, they're just making their own OS, and you know, it does make sense that they're doing it. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the GSM Arena article about it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some great news from Valve. They've announced their launch of the Steam Labs uh, experiments, and these are experiments that they have typically created in the uh, you know behind the scenes and are now making it possible for everyone to have access. So here's what they said about this announcement. Every year we create dozens of experiments around discoverability, video, machine learning, and more. You know we, uh, you know who we thought might be enjoying seeing them, uh, seeing these experiments. Well, everyone. For the first time, you can try, share, and even try to break them, and then share your feedback with the developers who create these experiments. So they have three experiments that are available right now. Uh, one of them is called a micro trailer, which is a six-second trailer of each game in a. It's more like a video thumbnail rather than a trailer because it's not really a full video with audio. It's just you go to this page, you hover over, and it gives you like six seconds of that game. Uh, and it's actually kind of interesting because I do think that it does give you some benefit of really quickly seeing what this game could be uh, without having to go to the page and then load up the videos and test all the different videos. So that is kind of an interesting idea, but it does need a little bit of work. Um, uh, there's also a interactive recommender, which I think is really cool because this is a machine learning recommendation system that suggests games you might like based on your library and your playing habits. So that's cool, but... It doesn't have a filter for Linux. It doesn't have a filter for Proton. So it will give you suggestions for games that are Windows only and don't work on Proton because it's doing it based on the game type that you play. And you might play a game that's you know, very similar to another game on Windows that you can't play. And I wish they would make it possible to you know, make take consideration that this is a Linux gamer rather than you know, just a gamer. So... Maybe in the future that will be better, but I think the uh, the recommend the interactive recommender is one of the most the best highest potential for this particular set of experiments. But the other experiment is the automatic show, which is a daily auto-generated video to show off various popular games in the uh, Steam store. Now, this is like a automatic show in the sense that it takes clips from various different pieces of the game, as in like a gameplay uh, gameplay trailer sort of thing. And then combines it with various, like, so it's like a four different uh, grid section of different types of the parts of the game. And you can kind of get like a really quick 30 second combination of like various different games. It's kind of interesting, but at the same time, it's kind of weird and awkward. But the micro trailers have a lot of potential, and the interactive recommender definitely has a ton of potential. So hopefully they will correct the things about the, about, you know, for Linux gamers because, you know. That would be much better experience, in my opinion. But if you'd like to learn more about this, the Valve Steam Labs, I have a link to them in the show notes. Up next in the show is some more gaming news with the greatest hit sale on the Humble Store. There are a variety of different games that are available on the Humble Store, so you should definitely check this out. There's also some pretty deep discounts on some of them. Uh, so, for example, there's games like uh, Dying Light, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Two Point Hospital, the Borderlands Handsome Collection, uh, Stellaris, and some many other games that are available if you'd like to get them. Uh, there's also going to be a, a book bundle available right now that I wanted to ch- uh, you know give some attention to because it's from it's programmable uh, books from Make Magazine, like uh, getting eBooks for jumpstarting C, make make the Make Magazine Bluetooth stuff, making things smart is what they call it, like smart devices kind of thing, uh, make a Raspberry Pi controlled robot and getting started with Photon, as well as many other books. So if you're interested in checking that out, I have a link to that book bundle, the Programming by Make Magazine book bundle, as well as the greatest hit sale on the Humble Store that is currently active right now. Uh, I'll actually just let you know there's also the links in the in below for the various different games that I mentioned, uh, and all of these links are affiliate links. So if you do decide to purchase the bundle or any of the games uh, from the, the greatest hit sale uh, from the Humble Store, if you if you would please don't mind if you don't mind using the uh, links in this, the video description or on the show notes on the website, 
it would be very appreciative because a small commission of each of those sales are going to go to Tux Digital and this podcast. So I would very much appreciate that if you wouldn't mind doing that. So if you do decide to purchase the book bundle or any of the games that I mentioned previously or anything that's on the Humble Store right now, please use please use the links below to uh, help out the Tux Digital channel and the This Week in Linux podcast. Up next in the show is a chance for me to make a correction on a thing I made a mistake on in the previous episode of uh, This Week in Linux, episode 73. So if I make a mistake, I always want to make sure that I correct them in the show because if there is something, especially something like this, that has a problem where I missaid something and made people think that the something that's inaccurate, I want to always make sure that I correct that to make sure people know of the as most, as most accurate information as I can possibly provide. And so last week, I said that they were going to be deprecating IDE in the Linux kernel of 5.2. That was not what I meant to say. And technically, I did say that, so I'm sorry about that. I did imply the incorrect thing. They were deprecating a specific driver for IDE, not IDE in general. So if you still use a hardware that's IDE-based that uses the lib ATA drivers, which is the majority of them, it's a very common uh, driver to use, that will still be supported by the Linux 5.2 kernel and also be supported for the foreseeable future. Only the obscure legacy driver that was being deprecated. That's the stuff that was being deprecated. So if your hardware uses that, which is much, much older than the lib ATA drivers, then that part would be deprecated, but not IDE in general. So if you have IDE drives or devices that you still need to use, you can still use them even with the 5.2 because they're not removing IDE in general. That was my bad in how I presented it. So uh, sorry about that. And hopefully this correction uh, shows that I, you know, I make mistakes, but I'm okay with admitting that I do and also making sure I get a correction in there because, you know, I don't want to, I want to make sure that you uh, can, you know, rest assured that I'm doing my best to give the most accurate information as possible on this show. And that's why if I do make a mistake, I am totally going to own up to it. So IDE is not going away in 5.2. Just that particular driver or legacy driver is getting is going away. So you should be fine to keep using IDE if you want to. Um, I'm not really sure why you'd want to, but if you do, you know, there you go. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute. We have PayPal, Patreon, and many more, especially uh, sponsors like I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, you can go to tuxdigital.com contribute to learn more. Uh, you might notice that the sponsors thing is not loading for some reason. Uh, I will fix that in, you know, after the show has been re- released. Uh, so you might see it, or you might not, but it'll be there soon. There's also other options, such as ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to TuxDigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere or TuxDigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. Now, this is a shirt that I designed that has Tux blended into the background to display the idea that whether you know or not that Linux is there, it probably is. So it's like a celebration of the proliferation of Linux because basically Linux is everywhere. And we also have other ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder, this show is live usually every Saturday, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Not this week, but usually each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.